0: Hello welcome to the Ready Revolution podcast with me, Danny Coffey. In the decade of centenaries, it would be remiss of us not to cover partition. It is the primary political question of the last hundred years for Ireland. Anyhow, we found the perfect book. Last November, a book was published entitled Ireland's Partition, Coda to Counter-Revolution. The author is a veteran Irish socialist who has been around since the 1960s in people's democracy and is now a member of Socialist Democracy. Welcome to the podcast, John McElnotty.
1: Thank
0: you very much, me. Yeah, um, an excellent book, a great read. Why did you write the book?
1: I I think the the primary reason was a decade of centenaries. Uh, every time I heard the phrase, my blood started to boil. <laughs> right.
0: Okay. Uh, and I started off to, <laughs> uh,
1: you know, uh, in the sense that, you know, this is based on a sort of ideology that's. Uh, risen out of the uh out of the peace process and uh has been very heavily pushed by Irish capitalism and it's ah sure we weren't we all at fault. Ah sure everybody was giving him <laughs> yeah, yeah. and uh so uh so you get you get this thing where they it's quite interesting actually because they c they, they're capable of, of uh commemorating anything Republican. Um uh they always make a hymns of that but they're bursting the to celebrate the black and tans and the auxiliaries and that sort of thing. Uh so that's that's half of it. Half of it I wanted to say, well somebody should say something from a Marxist point of view about partition And I think the other big element was uh that it's not just the Irish capitalism or the British or the Unionists who are rewriting Irish history. Uh the Republicans are as well or the former Republicans. Uh and uh and uh, again above that is people no longer know how to think about it so you know the idea the idea of this class involved is just absolutely absent from all the uh all the discussions about
0: partition uh today yeah well you have the very the redmanite section of which is Basically what Fine Gael and Fina Foyle have became, even even Fina has gone that direction. But I'll just go to a passage in the book which I think kind of sums up your argument here. Having failed to destroy the Irish demand for independence, partition was the last gas mechanism to hobble the further progress of democracy. Ireland was a giant laboratory where a series of strategies designed to subvert the global waves of anti-colonialism were hammered out. Can you just go through how the the British state because you, you go into that later on in the book, how the British state created partition and, and the mechanisms that they, they used to create the, the sectarian state?
1: Well, uh, I think uh, if you go back to the uh, the revolt by the British Army, you can see that and the I forget how many how many times a home rule bill went before uh the british parliament uh but quite clearly that it was a major bone of contention within britain itself and the uh the uh, tory position was not to let go of ireland um, um, but on the other hand uh, we were at the cusp of the start of decolonization and uh, that's best explained by vladimir Ilyich lenin <laughs> yep. uh, who said that you know you were move, moving from a period of export of goods uh and raw materials to the export of capital itself uh so instead of using uh the colonies as uh, captive markets reserve armies labor that sort of uh, sources of raw materials uh the british were the first to start exporting capital and uh, um, building up, and because they were doing that, that made it uh, more possible for the the middleman, if you like, the subordinate, the uh, capitalists in those countries, to demand a form of independence. And what gradually evolved was uh, they they got a form of of independence, but it was uh, within uh, the emerging idea of neo colonialism. Ireland was the sort of test case and a bit more complicated, because in the North, they already had an industrial base slaved to the the British economy. And, uh, you know, by imposing partition, they were able to A, keep that industrial base and B, sort of completely... Destroy any possibility of an, an independent capitalist Ireland, uh, you know, a genuine capitalist economy that that could stand on its own feet. And in fact, the other effect of partition is that the the uh, the southern economy actually tended to revolve around uh, things like the export of cattle and uh, you know farming produce and. Uh, uh, you know, invisible like insurance and banking and that sort of thing. Yeah.
0: It did. It split Ireland in two, it took away the industrial base from it and left us down here with just uh, the ranchers and Mead to to run the place. But there's another passage here, and it's just at the beginning of chapter two. Uh, it's an argument I hadn't come across before. Irish unionism was once nationalism. It was always anti-democratic.
1: Right, so I mean, before the before the Act of Union, you had an Irish Parliament, uh, but the Irish Irish Parliament was reserved for uh, about four percent of the population. It was uh, it was the established church. You had to be in the established church to get into the Parliament. You had to be a landowner. Yeah. Uh, so, under those circumstances, uh, 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 what would you call them? The High Church protestants uh, the church of ireland people they were absolutely happy to have an irish parliament to have you know formal independence and that sort of thing uh and what uh what uh, changed their minds was 1798 and the french revolution they decided that, that uh, uh well there's a couple of things going on they they reckoned that they would have to give some ground on catholic emancipation and the best way to uh, hobble that was to do away with the Irish parliament so that decisions would be made by a protestant english parliament uh, mm. and they they you know say voluntarily sur- uh, surrendered the uh, uh the irish parliament and then they were you know they were obviously delighted to get another democracy later on another northern parliament uh, people forget just how corrupt that was uh, <laughs> uh it was it was well it's something the same in the south but not quite as bad but in the north nobody contested many of the seats right uh and they passed from uh one scale of the family to the next uh oh, <laughs> hetero- the 70 years it happens to a lesser extent in the south, but that's you know it was so bad people just didn't bother standing you know and right. the nationalists could never make up their mind whether uh, and they were fir- fairly uh, quiet people, but they could not make up their mind whether to bother going in Stormont storm or or to stay out. You know, because it didn't really make any difference, what, did it?
0: Yeah, you had the gerrymandering, and, and that, and you have it here too. We've in in Mayo here. We've Derek Leary, who's a Mayo TD, and he's third generation. Yeah. <laughs> it goes on down here. Oh,
1: but there's usually people who stand against him. <laughs> yeah, well, there is, yeah,
0: there is that, all right? But it, it's, it's, he's been a, They've been a guaranteed seat for the last since the formation of the state. Anyway. Yeah. But just moving on, anyways, the workers' movement. Where does that sit in all of that? I, I mean, during the revolutionary period, we had, as you say in the book, a, a, a small. The Irish Citizen Army was quite small. But why didn't it develop? Its development—it kind of went into—and you you say it in the book—it went into reformism rather than the revolutionary side of it. That revolutionary side of it was suppressed, or or just didn't take off after after the revolutionary period. It was suppressed. Could you go into that, or how how that? Well, two things that I think
1: it's one of the things that people forget about is that irish politics takes place within an international context and is very very heavily inf- influenced by by that context uh for example the irish civil rights movement was a direct copy of the the uh, u.s civil rights movement yeah um now it, so actually uh it's fairly easy to explain um at the time of 1916, you had uh, a big British labour movement, but the people who organised much, the leadership of that, saw themselves as benefiting from British imperialism. They were quite aware that uh, the fruits of imperial wealth were, were what made it possible. Lenin wrote about this as the aristocracy of labour, that sort of thing. Yeah, and uh, you saw the same thing in Germany, where you had an absolutely massive workers' movement, uh, but it saw itself as to some extent tied to the the German state. Now you didn't see that in Russia, which had a very small working class, but living under complete oppression, no no opportunity for the sorts of reforms. Uh, and when the split between the reform and revision came. The revolutionaries by the skin of their teeth turned out to be stronger uh i mean the the, the the debate was never absolutely settled in advance you know you had to have a fight in each country uh but in terms of revolutions the russians were under slightly better uh circumstances or, or maybe you should call them slightly worse circumstances <laughs> now in ireland uh you had a revolutionary current uh which was uh inspired by the international so you had connolly traveling between scotland where there was a revolutionary current and going to the us which is a revolutionary current and coming back to the irish revolutionary current yeah. uh, but at the same time and the thing it's always quoted is the uh, the connolly walker dispute you know where yeah uh, where the unionist walker show sort of was for gas and water socialism and better municipal planning this sort of thing uh, but actually, the main debate wasn't between Connolly and Walker. The main debate was in the trade union movement itself, because the majority of the trade unions were offs- offsuits of uh, of the British unions. Yeah.
0: Uh,
1: so there was this built-in momentum towards reform, uh, towards allowing yourself to the state of getting uh, settlement from the state, you know, and... Uh, um, yeah, you know, so when Connolly raised the revolution perspective, he was quite isolated. The forces around him were quite small. And uh, you know, when he was when he was executed, uh uh, you know, that current was sort of easily dispersed, partly because of uh there's two factors dispersing it. One was that the Republicans were there. A lot of them were sort of left wing and they were very active, the movement was obviously going that way. And at the same time there was uh, an atmosphere of uh, conspiracy and duplicity at the top of the trade union movement. Uh they were always looking for a way to step back. Uh and of course one of the things that the trade union the reforms would have said is we have to represent everybody. Yeah. They would say a lot of our members aren't aren't revolutionaries. They're not even uh, for Irish independence, you know, so uh so we should be neutral and essentially neutrality is what's it hasn't actually marked the development of the irish trade union it's marked its constant failure if you like
0: yeah but also the the sectarianism of the northern state there was um a book there sean mitchell brought out there on the uh, belfast upheaval in ni- 1919 and that there was always that driving out the, the kind of red Protestants, the Lundy. They were suppressed as much as the, uh, and you talk about this in the book, as the nationalist community, the 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 bad prod as, as they would have been looked upon. Like. Well, the thing is, again,
1: in, in, when the dust settled in the South, you'd the Irish Labour Party, and the irish labour party never I, I i don't think ever developed as uh you know a coherent voice for the Irish working class no it, 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 it essentially evolved into being the meat in this in the sandwich right you know uh if you had to have a non-fiannafoil government you put on labor as ballast to try and moderate the worst aspects of any gale mm-hmm. which, uh, which didn't work very well and it's it's seen the dissolution of the ever um uh, in the north you had the northern Ireland labor party and of course it was kurt of even more scared of uh bringing up the uh the national question uh and in the end of the day that meant that they were unionist um, yeah. um there's one famous figure uh who uh who actually crossed the chamber and became a minister uh for the unionist government And that meant that, you know, if you like, the rotten prods had no political voice. Yeah. You know, the thing that they made a look to, the Labour Party, just didn't represent, um, you know, class struggle. You know, they they wanted to avoid all struggle as best they could.
0: And eventually that would have, that mindset would have taken over as well, because there would have been seemingly no alternative. Just to move on then. You talk about the women's struggle and partition and how it hampered. Because we have during the revolutionary period, you have the likes of uh, Winifred Kearney and there's a host of uh, Catherine Lynn here in Mayo, the host of revolutionary women and very progressive women, you know, in the north then and in the south, the minute that period's over, that's it, the, the feminism or any type of women's movement is gone. Right. Okay. So, actually,
1: something similar happened in modern times, because uh, after sixty-eight, you started to see uh, the growth of women's politics, a women's movement in in the north and the south as well. You had the uh, the the condom training, that sort of thing, yeah. uh, and uh, in the north. Uh, in the 70s, there was a division in that movement. Uh, so, uh, a lot of the women, uh, the the actual debate was we should be an anti imperialist women's movement. Yeah. And uh, on the other side, uh, and this is a very old uh, counterposition, on the other side, you'd people saying, well, uh, a metropolitan country with London at its head. <laughs> Will bring civilization to the north. uh You right. know, if, if we appeal to London, uh there's no need to bring up the national question to be divisive. Just bring it to London and say we demand the same sort of uh rules and uh, regulations you have in London. Uh, so, what happened is that after the hunger strike, and then, so that's an important I think you have to see from my point of view, the hunger strike was a defeat. People argue that it wasn't, you know, and that was an overwhelming argument at the time. But before, uh, when the, the hunger strike movement was moving, there were something like a thousand different organizations in mm-hmm. uh, the hunger strike campaign. Now, after the hunger strike campaign, they all collapsed. You know, it was only... The- yeah. There's only fragments left. (laughs) We collapsed as well, (laughs) you know. We survived by the skin of our teeth. And what all those people did is they joined Sinn Fein. Yeah, that's what the women activists did. They joined Sinn Fein, and uh, I felt quite bad about it because after fighting tooth and nail, where they always were shouting at us, weren't doing enough, (laughs) they joined Sinn Fein, and the Shinners after a year got them all into room and said, "Look, you're going to have to forget this abortion question." It'll damage the party, right? <laughs> and so that that wing of, which was actually the biggest and most militant wing, it fell apart, you know, because it's sort of like labour must wait, women must wait, you know, and that's yeah. what uh, emerged down to that defeat. At the same time, if you like the the reformist wing, wasn't was weaker, didn't do anything for a long time, got itself together and it's been applying the th- same thing so there's a big giant petition to west minister why did you bring in abortion rights and they do but uh you know uh, stormont won't implement those abortion rights no. <laughs> uh, and uh, they're sort of going back to uh to a uh, west minister and saying well you've got to do a bit more but the thing is there's a contradiction between the sort of sectarian settlement that you have uh, where the major party is uh, is a crowd of bible thumpers and uh, and uh, you know the metropolitan uh, uh, society we're all going to live in uh, given that uh, the metropolitan society and has going down the tubes as well there's that doesn't seem very realistic so what i'm saying the same the same sort of process happened uh with partition there was a radical women's movement in the in the north but it was yeah. overawed by lady londonderry and her league of, of unionist women they, they were just drowned out and probably intimidated the uh, to the point of death you know and and uh, uh in the south similar very reactionary forces became uh the leaders of, of the irish state and they were able to to, to just dismiss uh people like Maud gone or, uh, or Sorry, what am whom am I talking about? Markovic. Uh, Markovic died. Yeah. Countess Markovitch. died as a Mark, she died a, a pauper,
0: you know. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and they, they wouldn't give her a state funeral, you know.
0: It did. It just went down. And looking at the that's the second wave a wave of feminism, um, which kind of, but just going to the nationalist uh movement, it's a very broad church. And you bring up a lot of antagonisms between in the nationalist movement, like you have, you know, there's, there's the class class nature of the movement, and there's that whole idea of we must concentrate on the on the national question. But there's all also there was also um, the idea that those antagonisms split it apart as well. So it's it's not never a cohesive movement.
1: Well, I think. Um, what you can see when you go back to 1916 is, uh, if you like, the bourgeois wing of of uh, of Irish nationalism feared revolution.
0: Yeah.
1: They would rather have the Brits than have a revolutionary upsurge, and that's that was the and that was the big problem for the IRB as well. They thought they could trick the volunteers into joining the rising. And when the volunteers realized what was going on they said no thank you you're on you're on your own so i think that my own feeling is that the the most confusing uh phrase from that period is the men of no property because what it what they were really what they really meant is men of little property so the leaders of the of the republican movement were what we would call petty bourgeois you know they uh they had some position in society uh but they didn't have capital and it was the inability to have capital the inability to be capitalist uh in a country that was under the subordination of another that drove uh the republican struggle you know it was it was Bound up in a lot of other irritations and injustices and so on, but that was the centered thing, you know that, uh, in a colony you couldn't, you know, the struggle to become a capitalist was, more or less impossible, um, so um, so you had these three three uh, themes and uh one you know so the the workers' movement was very weak and split into revolution and reform, the. Republican movement was constantly blind to uh, it. It constantly lived in a dream of of nationalist unity because they wouldn't see the class nature of uh, of uh, constitutional nationalism. Yeah. So whenever things got, to, got to the got a bit, uh, the nationalists could always stab in the back, and they'd always be surprised. And also because they they were trying to balance between uh capitalism and uh socialism uh they tended uh not to put forward an alternative social program you know uh, i mean i'm fairly convinced that uh, the republicans had the majority at the time of the treaty but uh you know they they fought over doff things they fought over the oath they fought over legalisms you know if they had said we we're going to seize all the estates <laughs> yeah. and and give them out. They would have had a bit more back.
0: <laughs> yeah, they they would have um, even. I think Liam Mellows realised that eventually that that was his. Uh, he he writes um, when he's in prison. Um, just where we are now, anyways. Um, oh no, that's another question I wanted to ask you. You brought up the theoretical debate in between the CPI, the, the Communist Party of Ireland, and people's democracy on the stages theory. And how was that? How did that debate? How did it play out during the movement at, at the the civil rights movement? Well, I mean, when you talk about that debate,
1: you're talking about Berntalot. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, you're talking about that more, but Berntalot is what sums it up uh, because, uh, just before Burnt Hallid, O'Neill, Captain O'Neill, the leader of the Unionist Party, had appealed for a truce. He yeah. said, "Give me time." Did you not see me shaking hands with them nuns? <laughs> I can get you something. Give me time. Uh, I can't say what I'll get you, but at some stage I'll get you something uh, as long as it, you don't upset the the loyalists. I have to keep them quiet, and the majority of the the nascent SDLP and the civil rights association said that's a very fair point captain we'll give you time so uh uh we decided to uh, to, uh hold the uh hold the um the belfast to Derry march yeah and that was again a, a const uh a conscious imitation of the american experience i think was uh selma to montgomery yeah the, the original march and we said well demonstrate to us that things have changed we're doing nothing but walking along the roads to an our city demonstrate to us that we can do that you know and uh of course we couldn't no and uh o'neill couldn't get away with that because he couldn't bring himself to condemn the loyalists he condemned the the demonstrators and at that point you know the vast majority of the uh nationalist working class said well these boys are right there's no point in in given one of the truth we're not going to get anything out of it that whole argument actually went on up to uh up to bloody sunday um, yeah. and at bloody sunday the the british said no no we're we're definitely not you know, allowing this mobilization to continue. And they the reformists went home. Yeah. You know, uh, they yeah. They held another march in uh, Newry for the sake of uh, old exam and to show they weren't they weren't frailt. And then they just, disp- they, they disbanded all demonstrations, you know.
0: And that's where it turns in into the armed struggle. That's at that period. It, that's the end of the civil civil rights well, not quite. Um,
1: I think that's an overstatement to say. I mean, what it is is after the withdrawal of the thing, what you had left was still a mass movement. Yeah. You know, uh, you had no go areas, you had barricades, you had mass demonstrations, right? Uh, so there was still an organic movement. Now, and that, that led to an endless confusion because the leadership. Was the republicans and the republicans uh had a distinct idea and the distinct idea was that all this mass stuff was just support so that they could do the real business yeah right they had a phrase for it they called they called the armed struggle the cutting edge uh and we warned them that uh uh that that could um uh, that could quite easily demoralize the population you know and and over the long long time it did you know when uh people out fighting the the british told that the ira slaughtered a dozen people in a, a bomb it didn't make them want to fight the british more it made them want to g- give up yeah. uh, and the the final the final thing i think was the uh, bloody friday yeah and after a big long period of uh the the bog side being off 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 uh limits for the british army and state forces the british says well we're taking it now you've disgraced yourselves we are taking it we're bringing in saracen tanks we're coming in and uh, i don't think it was a shot fired no you know the uh the you know the the republicans just didn't have that element of class and they didn't have that element and another big thing is they they very much saw it as an Northern struggle. So you know, not at, at a certain level, if they tried an armed struggle in the south, it would have <laughs> it would have been a terrible disaster, you know. Yeah. But that wasn't what was called for. What was called for was a movement that was all Ireland and opposed to Irish capitalism, and they weren't really
0: interested in that. And where it's developed. It's developed, you know, from Sunningdale to the Good Friday Agreement. We have, we have a peace now, but it's the state is still there. We have a long way to go yet. Where do you see it going from here?
1: Well, the, the main theme in the book, and basically when I, I'd written it and looked back, I thought I hadn't made this quite clear, is at the time of partition, there were these different class forces at work you know there was the workers movement reform and revolution yeah uh, there was uh the republican movement with a right and a left there was constitutional nationalism with a right and a right uh and there was uh, the british themselves who remained the dominant and still remain the dominant uh, uh you know player all the way through and the unionists who were who whether they know it or not and sometimes they try to say it another way but they are dependent on the british uh, you know we don't have partition because the unionists voted for it we have partition because the british, uh, the british. legislated for it and set up the, the state forces to apply it you know um, and given the chance after 30 years of war they decided to keep partition and to keep uh the sectarian basis on which sector partition floats so uh uh the main big change i think is that uh, we can see that the workers movement is incredibly weak at the moment Um, so what we're what we are looking for is a change in the balance of forces you know there has to be reorganization of workers not just in ireland um and at the minute i think uh, there's been this big long offensive, and most people are quite afraid. Uh, you know, can you keep? I mean, look at the P and O thing yesterday. You know, can you yeah. keep your job? Uh, is it just? Is it a matter of hanging on? What if somebody taps you on the shoulder and and shows you the door? You know, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you know, if you're you know, you have to. There are two. You know, let me put it this way: capitalism is a system in which the working class are subordinate and the capitalist classes is homo- homogenic you know they they rule everywhere they rule all the ideas all the outlets and that sort of thing um, and when the workers will only change that uh, either when they have an an enormous amount of confidence they say we can do better in this and 68 was actually an example of that you know and, Sixty-eight across Europe, people, and in and in uh, America, people said, "Well, we feel pretty good. We've had wages uh, and good conditions for a while. We got that through struggle. We can do better." Now, obviously, people don't feel that at the moment, uh, but they, uh, you know, the the other end of the scale is to say, "Well, this is so bad that it's now unbearable." And we're not going to sit still anymore. Never know when that's going to happen. The thing is, the class struggle doesn't go away. You know, the, uh, you know, there's outbreaks every week. You know, there's small scale. You see things in, in the South, you see things like the, the transport strikes, the nurses' strikes and so on. And they all contain within themselves the potential to upset the apple cart. And I think that's the last point I would make is, that one of the things the workers are struggling against at the moment is the fossils of their old movements. Now, the trade union movement is not at the moment struggling for the workers. It's in bed with the capitalists and has been for about three decades. Um, Social partnership uh, and all of that yeah, stuff. Yeah. Well, uh, well, I was at, I was at a teachers' conference and they were proposing the latest uh, latest deal and uh one of the one of the teachers got up she was very indignant she says but this deal takes away from us the right to strike and uh the uh general secretary looked at her in astonishment says well we haven't had that for 20 years <laughs> we give it up every time we sign one of these things <laughs> um and uh the same thing with the uh with the political parties I mean, Sinn Féin is a capitalist party and it's not sort of mildly capitalist. It's uh, and it's not just a capitalist party. It's quite a it's quite a corrupt capitalist party. Uh, you know, people are talking about Sinn Féin solving the housing crisis in the South. They wouldn't want to look too closely at Sinn Féin and housing in the north. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, the Labour Party, I think, are at this point, you know, I don't know if they disappear. But actually, uh, the Labour voters tend to go. Uh, are now tending to vote Finney Gale second preference. So, you know, so, uh, you know uh, the idea that the Labour Party will evolve into a workers' movement, I think, is is not. A, and I'm, I, I don't want to be a sectarian in this, world, but I, I don't really have any, any faith in the, uh, in the parliamentary left.
0: Yeah, it's right. for for me, though, I, I do engage in it for the simple reason is if you can't just leave them to their own devices. And I feel that. Yes, we you could do an awful lot better than a social democratic party like that uh, kind of soft left like Sinn Féin. But they're an awful lot better than like I mean, they'd be so much better than than Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. I mean, you couldn't be any worse, like uh, even if they got. The homeless numbers down to to two thousand instead of ten thousand. Yeah, it would be you know that's terrible even to have two thousand people homeless in in a place with two hundred thousand empty homes. But um, it- well let's let's let's
1: look quickly at the homeless thing. Where are we? Where where we are is that uh, there was a, a housing budget pub published in November it was supposed to be followed by a national demonstration. The trade unions canceled that demonstration. Yeah. And the trade union leadership, Patricia King is on the body to implement the government's housing plan. Yeah. Right. And the housing plan is, uh, supply and demand. If we, if we get enough houses built, the price will fall and everything will be all right. Uh, but that isn't actually what happens, you know. It's a, you know, uh, the the housing budget actually just feeds vulture capital, yeah, and uh, it inflates the price of housing rather than reducing it, you know. So we're getting a, uh, an increased marketization. of housing. So that doesn't work. Now, when Sinn Fein said they said we we have a we have a cunning plan, and the cunning plan is to cut out the developer, uh, because that's a lot of the, the where the money's soaked up. Mm. We get rid of the developer, and we'll use public land, and uh but that leaves a, that leaves a, a gap, you know. And the the way they say they they fill the gap is they get the European Central Bank to give us a loan. Yeah, I, <laughs> we're in the rates
0: are going up as we're well. We're in the
1: fantasy uh now. The thing is, I, I would think the starting point. If you want to say anything, say look, if we want to fix housing, we're going to have to expropriate. Yeah. I- we're gonna to have to take stuff right you know uh we're gonna to have to take vacant land we're gonna to have to take vacant property uh we're gonna to have to take uh some of this whack of money that's held by the vulture capital right and we're gonna to have to uh you know we might want to repudiate the debt that we're still paying <laughs> those sorts of things you know now uh, the thing is they sound crazy in a sense because people say we couldn't do any of that you know but in fact for a while, there people were doing things like that. You remember that uh, there was uh, a UVF security squad down down yes. in the west uh, who, yeah. in who, who got a bad surprise, you know. And uh, there was a similar sort of face-off in uh, in Dublin. Was uh, yeah, I mean, that's no. uh, it's always going on in Dublin, for example. The 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 council used the fabricate. You know, somebody uh, somebody. Um, occupy something to move in send a and say, oh this building's terrible dangerous and for your own good we'll have to throw you out <laughs> right away you know? mm-hmm. so it happens uh you know people do take all sorts of actions around housing uh that have the potential to be um so you know people are desperate and they say we can't see anywhere. out of this we vote Sinn fein and I understand that's going to happen, but what I'm saying is for revolutionaries, don't be telling people that this will work. It won't work. Yeah. Uh, you will be, you know, and you can see the shiners up here. I just, you know, nobody wants to look. I think what they, I'm not quite sure what to think. I think they think, well, they have to do this. They have, you know, they're, they're forced to operate this system and, you know, we, we don't want to look too closely. But the, the housing situation up here is going in the same direction as it is in the south. And, uh, in, fa- in fact, we're about three-quarters of the way through what's essentially the privatisation of the housing stock. People don't really notice because the government's paying the rents. Yeah. Uh, so they don't know who the houses belong to. But there's two big blocks of uh, housing associations which now borrow their money from European banks, and the Housing Executive itself, which used to be the big, the big reform in the North, had the civil rights. It cleared out the slum housing in in one fell swoop for everybody, uh, and it's been broken up. Its its powers have been reduced, and now it's been allowed to borrow money from the banks. So in practice, it's privatized. And no one will notice until, number one, interest rates go up. Oh, hold on. Our interest rates go up. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're <laughs> uh, up or number two, until the government cuts the subsidy. Or the government, you know. Yeah. And on top of that, there's also the main activity of Belfast City Council is okaying big property developments. And they're springing up everywhere, you know. Uh, and it's uh, feeding time at the trough for, the, for big capital.
0: It is for the vulture funds. Finally, yeah. though, and something that's caught because we've gone off topic of the book and we've digressed a bit, but we'll go, just to digress again. Just it's something that, that's been thrown up to me um, during the week on social media and various posts. I've been looking, they've looked at the Ukraine situation like the North. You have the kind of the the Russian minority in the, in the east of the country, like we have in the the unionist minority. In the, do you see the similarities there, or would you put that argument together, or how would you see that? Well,
1: uh, there's a big, well, I think that's to one side in a sense, right? Yeah. Because there's a big divide in the socialist movement, and some people are saying well russia's invaded ukraine uh russia has no right to invade ukraine the only issue is defense of ukraine right uh and i agree with the first sentence right you know i agree that russia has no right to invade ukraine yeah Uh, um now but there's a bigger picture and the bigger picture is that nato has formed a circle around Russia. Yeah, the enhanced forward presence. Yeah. So, uh, and in fact, I think what you see in this war is that uh, while I don't agree with the Russian attack, they left it too late. They invaded Ukraine to stop uh, NATO. NATO are already in there. Have been in there for some some considerable time, and have armed and uh, trained the Ukrainian army to the point where. Russians are, are having a hard time uh so but that in a sense is the start of World War Three. and I think we should defend the rights of Ukrainian people but we should be worried about the onset of World War Three. uh and I think in terms of balance of forces Russia is at an enormous disadvantage yeah. in a face-off with Ukraine or with uh with NATO you know. Yeah, neither outgun and out uh uh and outperform russia on every st- stage and uh you know we can see it as i mean in, in people just take these things out of context you know uh so biden gets into power he does almost nothing for he does nothing for the the american class but he encircles iran he encircles Venezuela, he encircles China, and he revives NATO and uh, and encircles Russia. And one of the big gains for the Americans right away is they've kicked uh, Germany in the line. Yeah. And the price of kicking Germany in the line is everybody will pay for fuel. Everybody will pay to make sure that Russia has no influence on the world stage. And uh and we'll pay in all sorts of ways. We'd pay and uh uh it's not just fuel and energy and heat and that sort of thing. Uh there's a big question mark over where we get our bread from. Yeah. And you know it, you know, I don't think people are gonna say, Oh, this is an unfortunate side effect of this uh of this war. Uh who could have seen it coming? I think some people people will say, Well and we were on the we were on the cusp of them all moving in with a knife saying you have to pay for the COVID thing now cutting yeah. back and all bringing back a major austerity and now it's going to double down on them and it's going to double down on us so uh that's essentially you know you know one side is trying to say the russians are saying well ukraine's sort of like a fascist state so we're perfectly right to close them in and uh you know uh the other side are saying well Ukraine is a wonderful democracy how dare you attack it? and the truth is somewhat in, in between the, on the lower scale there's definitely a, a fascist presence in yeah. uh, in Ukraine uh on the upper scale Ukraine is clearly has very little independence in this struggle Ukraine has been all you have to do is look back I mean Zelensky was pushed back and forward by uh, Trump yeah and it's you no know, sooner Trump out and he's getting pushed back and forward by uh by Boy. Biden, you know the, and behind behind Zelensky himself are some very, uh, very uh unsavory characters, you know, uh, yeah. and you see that in the way the way he deals with the war, you know. At one minute he says, "No, we can come to a deal with
0: with the yeah. Russians
1: and bring us to an end," and then a couple of minutes later, be we'll fight to the death in Kiev," you know, and uh. And yeah. that's what uh, Lavrov. Lavrov expresses exasperation. Say, well, we don't want more talks. We want you to say what you're willing to to do.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a very dodgy situation, and I see that. Um, I well, you... from
1: our point sorry to interrupt, but from our point of view, the main thing at, you have to con- the main enemy is at home. Yeah, so say, absolutely. What's happening to us? What's happened to us? Is this Boy Coveney? Has the it <laughs> It's pretty late, and we're going to double our or treble our defence budget. You know, yeah, how <laughs> oh, wonderful! Just, That's all I want. You know, <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, we don't want that, anyways. And it, it it has to be resisted at home. But I've been at a few online meetings, and we're we're seeing some movement on it but the left is very divided on this and it has to come together on uh the way i look at it it has to come together with a coherent neutrality to keep our neutrality um and to be kind of peace brokers to that war benefits nobody um it benefits no working class person anyway the rich billionaires in switzerland hiding away from it that's the people who it benefits but john it's been great chatting to you the book is Ireland's Partition, quarter for Counter Revolution. There'll be a link in the description. Much appreciated, John. Okay, I'll try and stay, stay on topic in the future. <laughs> You're fine. Well, that's it from us. Denise O'Toole produced The Beatles by DJ Green. As usual, there's a link in the description. There's also a link to the book in the description. It's a great read. Anyways, thanks for listening. Toga Boogie, Slonga foil.